We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet out. Okay, I'm out. Really looks funny out there. See my glove out there, Jim. Jimmy Moore, get back in. Good morning, Gordo. Yes, how are you? How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? We have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 79 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Jiminy 9A with Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan, part 3. EVA. We left off last week with Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan completing three rendezvous with the ATDA, but no docking because the shroud was still in place on the docking adapter. On June 5, 1966, at 5.30 a.m., nearly 45 hours and 30 minutes into the mission, the crew began preparations for Cernan's walk in space. In the cramped Gemini cabin, they worked, rested, and worked again, finishing ten minutes before sunset. Near sunrise, Cernan opened his hatch. Here is a clip. Sorry, the audio is pretty garbled on this entire mission. Opening the hatch took more effort than Cernan expected, but he soon stood in the opening looking out at the universe and waiting for the first signs of daylight. Cernan had no feeling of disorientation or any sensation of being lost in the dark of space. The first thing he did was throw out a trash bag, the start of an EVA scheduled to last 167 minutes during which time the pilot would stand, walk, float, or ride nearly twice around the world. Once outside the spacecraft, Cernan did some simple experiments to get the feeling of working in space. He was startled to find that everything took longer than he assumed it would from his experience in simulations. Cernan said he really had no idea how to work in slow motion or at orbital speeds, Every movement of an arm or leg in free space exacted a reaction from his body. Minute forces that would scarcely be noticed in Earth's gravity upset his equilibrium in space. He had only to twitch his fingers to set his body in motion. On Gemini 4, Ed White had commented on the need for handholds. Now Cernan found that even those that were installed on Gemini 9A were inadequate and that the Velcro was not strong enough to keep his body in position as he edged back toward the adapter. 
Here is a better audio of Cernan and Stafford from a press conference after the flight. What I'd, what I'd like to do in the EVA, it, uh, I feel, feel that I must have been over it about uh, 30 times in technical debriefings, and that's not my goal here today. I'd just like to run, run through very briefly uh, what our plans were and uh, what we did as we went along, just identifying where the problems were that we ran into, and then I would like to then summarize what we found out uh, from encountering these problems in, uh, in the real-time or actual flight situation and what we've discovered since, uh, since we reco- uh, we've been here debriefing in Houston. We had a, a two-day and one-night uh, EVA flight planned. Uh, we went through almost this entire period. We uh, spent the first day on what we call umbilical evaluation evaluations, finding out what the capabilities of man were uh, to to maneuver uh, on the umbilical, to use Velcro or sticky-type pads and try and walk around the spacecraft, to use handholds on the spacecraft and find out what our capabilities or limitations of moving from one point of the spacecraft to the other, uh, what these problems or, or difficulties might be, or what ease uh, we had in maneuvering around the spacecraft. We also uh, were investigating during this first period, first daylight period, the uh, operation of a new environmental control system, which is called the, we call the chest back or the uh, ELSS. Uh, we've never flown this chest back before in actual flight. Uh, it's somewhat different. Uh, it has uh, longer capability than what, what Ed White flew on GT4. So we were looking, looking for uh, the capabilities and reactions of this chest pack to keep cool, to ventilate. Uh, and to maintain the certainly the required suit pressures that we would need for extravehicular activity. We did all this during the first day pass with, uh, with no difficulty. We came back with some data and recommendations on umbilical evaluation, umbilical lengths, and uh, how actually to handle yourself uh, when floating in the near proximity of the spacecraft. Uh, we felt that the ELSS during this period of time on its, on its medium flow uh, operated very satisfactory, factory, uh, factorily, and there was uh, certainly a great deal of comfort on my part uh, in terms of temperature control, in terms of total oxygen supply, and in terms of suit integrity. That is, the, my suit pressure never varied from what I had expected to see and what I had seen in our chamber runs here back in Houston. We. Uh, then returned just towards the end of this period, uh, had planned to return to the hatch area. We had the hatch open all this period of time. Returned to the hatch area, and we were going to make some film pack uh, changes on the camera, on the extravehicular camera, which we did without any difficulty. I took the camera off the back or outside of the spacecraft and gave it to Tom, and he made some film and lens changes. We put the camera back in position. Uh, we had, uh, again, somewhat of a, of a problem uh, keeping my feet where we wanted to. You may have heard uh, pull me down, Tom, a number of times, and uh, this was more of a, a convenience type thing because my feet tended to float in places where I didn't really have a, a good foothold uh, in order to reach. When you reach for something, you want to you have either a, a toehold or a, or a handhold, and many of these, re- these tasks that we were doing, at this, even at this period of time, required two hands. So you have to restrain yourself in some fashion. This is why uh, pull on to my leg, Tom, or pull my leg down, Tom, type of thing uh, occurred during this period of time. We, uh, we did make these changes, and uh, we had a short rest period, at which at that time was, was uh, 
really not needed because the the amount of work done uh, just in floating around in and around the spacecraft and and uh, checking out the umbilical and putting in cameras and putting on rear view mirrors and other extravehicular equipment around the spacecraft was was very slight and uh, it's very comparable to what you might expect uh, to find right here in 1G. We uh during the spacewalk, we tend to forget about the other astronaut inside the capsule. With the capsule door wide open, Tom Stafford was exposed to the hard vacuum of space and the temperature fluctuations. Here's Tom describing the experience. One thing with this that amazed me at the first, I'm sure all of you have gone swimming along with a boat, and when you want to get into a boat, even a good boat, size boat, the weighs four and five thousand pounds. When you reach up and grab a hold of it in the water, you tilt the whole boat. Well, down here on Earth, on a boat, you have water to damp it. But it became immediately clear to me that Gene was producing a lot of torque on the vehicle, and we're in real good communications. And when you come back on the adapter and get near the thruster section back here, I would turn off the control power. And in one thirty-second period, he pitched me up thirty degrees. And then I had to slowly pulse back down and come back into the control mode. And when he finally went back into the adapter, I had the control mode off for approximately three minutes, a little over. We're going uh, small and forward. In that period of time, Gene turned me around 150 degrees, rolled me inverted, and pitched me down 40 degrees. So I could tell he was putting out uh, a considerable effort as far as torquing the spacecraft down. Uh, However, I must say that even though we were upside down, pitched down, and yawed around, it made no difference to either myself or Gene because we went right through the work task uh, as we planned. Cernan was now fighting the limited mobility of his spacesuit, and the effort taxed his strength. The umbilical cord was cumbersome as well. Cernan constantly referred to it as the snake. When he let it out to any distance, it was hard to control. The next step was to partially close the hatch to gain some thermal protection. Of course, they couldn't close the hatch all the way because Gene's umbilical cord was routed through the doorway. Here's Cernan's description from the press conference. But continuing, we were in daylight and continuing on with our, our desired work task as we had gone through many times and had them laid out, we now close the hatch. We... Uh, we didn't lock it for a number of reasons, not that I didn't trust Tom, but uh, but we did have an umbilical coming out of the hatch, and we closed the hatch within two inches of being fully closed, and the main reason we did this was uh, thermal control of hatch seals, of, uh, of in the interior of the spacecraft. Uh, you know, the temperatures go to both extremes of hot and cold, and we were concerned about keeping our hatch seal, for one thing, within within uh, limits of being soft so we would have no problems closing the hatch. I might say that this was probably the first real work task or physical task that I encountered. That, that was of closing the hatch, of pulling the hatch closed, because here again, uh, you, have, you, you just have two hands to work with and you cannot restrain your feet in any fashion. But we did get the hatch closed. Which... The next step was to go to the adapter section of the spacecraft and don the AMU. Here's Gene. At which time uh, I progressed back to the adapter section of the spacecraft, or the back end of the spacecraft. And for those of you who are not extremely familiar, we all here at MSC are, I know, but, but this adapter area is, is a white area of the spacecraft, and I progressed back, 
back from the hatch area after it was closed over the top of the spacecraft and back into this area right here. And this is where our, the majority of, of our work tasks were going to be done. The, uh, the uh, adapter is where the, where the AMU was and where we did all this donning. Now, I'd like to, we have this very adapter over here, and I'm going to step over here just for a second. To give you an idea, you've heard about, about positioning problems, and some of you may have known what we were going to do prior to, to our, our flight, but maybe you might get a better idea. For, for purposes of, of relative simplicity, because I'm standing up, we have the adapter actually located vertically, but in reality, this is the top of the spacecraft right here. And so in space, uh, I was roughly at 90 to 100 degrees uh, laying sort of on my side. Now, this was mainly because this is where the ATDA, or excuse me, the, the AMU fit into the adapter of the spacecraft. And this again, although when I got back there and I Instead of looking down at the Earth, I saw the horizon of the Earth going across my side. This had uh, didn't bother me a bit. It, it uh, didn't feel unusual, and it didn't hamper any of our operations. I actually came and brought the umbilical around the top of the adapter through this guide to make sure that it stayed clear of all thrusters, because as soon as I actually got around the edge of the adapter, Tom was now free to turn the thrusters on and uh, put the spacecraft in a proper attitude of heads up, pointing forward. Uh, this was no real problem. You've seen pictures of the Gemini 6 and the Gemini 7 flight where, where uh, there was a lot of conversation about all the debris that was hanging from the adapter. Our adapter was beautiful. There was not one inch of any of this uh, encapsulating material, any of this plastic uh, uh, hose-type things hanging down at all. The adapter, of course, was sharp as we anticipated it to be, and here again is why we brought the umbilical around the edge. When Cernan finally reached the adapter, some lights that had been installed to help him see were not burning. He asked Stafford to turn them on, but only one lit up. Moving around the adapter was no easier than moving around the rest of the spacecraft. Still, Cernan began preparing the astronaut maneuvering unit for flight. He attached pin lights, opened and checked the nitrogen and oxygen shutoff valves, positioned the sidearm controllers, umbilicals and restraint harnesses, attached the AMU tether, turned on the unit's electrical power, and changed over to the electrical umbilical. Everything, just everything, took much longer than he expected. He kept floating out of control. He simply could not maintain body position. The few foot bars, stirrups, and hand bars were insufficient for any task that required leverage. Here's Gene's description. The first, the first, uh, one of the first things we wanted to do, of course, was get in these stirrups right here. And uh, with both feet in the stirrups, I don't mean to turn my back on you, but I'll just get here just for a minute. And this was our, our basic position to don the AMU. And all our work was, was pointed in this direction. This is why... Uh, the spacecraft was my reference, and as far as the rest of the world was concerned, whether we were pointed up or down, uh, had little or no effect. Now, by nature and by plan, and because we had we had trained this way, the majority of all our operations, there's many valves, which I won't go into, many uh, harnesses, electrical and oxygen connections, uh, many other details of the handrails that all take two hands to operate with. And... Uh, 
we feel that just because we're extravehicular, there's no reason to go out there with one hand tied behind your back. In other words, uh, you ought to be able to use two hands to accomplish any desired task, uh, do any workload that you so desire. Well, we had gone through this in a zero-G airplane, and we knew pretty much what the problems were going to be. As a result, we did put these restaining or re foot stirrups or re retention so that your feet would not float up. Well, as it turned out, uh, we did have a positioning problem, which I, I won't uh, I'll just identify and attempt to go into a little bit later, but we did have a positioning problem where I continued to float out of the stirrups and uh, did not have, have freedom of both hands for any continued length of time. Uh, this is why, uh, or this is, as a, let me say this, as a result, I had to work continually against a pressure suit, against the, the stiffness of the suit, and uh, this work then... Uh, had to be taken out through the environmental control system. This is this is a type of work that was not really useful work, but it was work that that I had to do to maintain my position. Well, about the time that I got got here uh, into the back into the area and started working connecting some hooks on the tether, uh, the sun was just about to go down, and Tom, being in the front of the spacecraft, was almost in total darkness, and I was in in total sunlight, and I. Uh, immediately got very warm on the back, and I'll explain this in a minute, but I got extremely hot on the back, as a matter of fact, in the small of the back area. We stopped and took a rest uh, until the sun went down, and then we continued on with, with uh, some of our, our task of operating and, and donning the AMU. About this time is when uh, my visor started fogging up, because this in itself is your life support. The... Uh, the problem then started as soon as it got dark. The the uh, visor fogged up. We had conversations back and forth about this. Uh, we knew what was happening, and it was just a case of continuing on because we were not time limited. We actually had allowed a uh, hundred percent pad in in terms of how long it would take us to do any any task here on Earth or in the zero g airplane. We doubled that time just so we know we'd have enough time. And I then then just looked out into the black night. It was dark at this time, and uh, it was there was no discrete difference between Earth and night. In other words, I could not actually see a horizon. I uh, I won't say I became a little lonely at this time, but uh, but as I was sitting there, we had we had one light uh, instead of two again, which really didn't cause any problems. One of the lights just did not come on. The light appeared to me as I was looking out out my visor as a as a uh, an automobile light coming through a not a dense fog but a but a misty type fog. So Ten minutes after sunset, Cernan's faceplate began to fog, so he rested. But here there could be no such thing as complete relaxation, because of the tendency to drift away. He went back to work, but his visor soon fogged again. After the next sunrise, the moisture lessened. As soon as he moved about, it returned. Strangely, he felt neither hot nor cold. His only problems were this fog visor and task that had to be done with only one hand when he really needed two. When 80% of the work was completed, Cernan again had to stop and rest. Like a mountain climber with a backpack, he sat down in the maneuvering unit and found his most peaceful moment in this strange environment. Body molded to the seat, 
feet against a foot bar, and arms atop the handlebars, he enjoyed a taste of comfort for the first time since he started his spacewalk. The flight passed into darkness, but by the light in the adapter, Cernan could tell just how occluded his faceplate had become. He now began to wonder whether to go on with the EVA. Mentally, he checked off the checklist items that remained. Strap in, change to the AMU oxygen lead, start breathing oxygen from the unit supply, and free his personal transportation from the space adapter. Cernan knew from repeated experience in zero-G training flights that he could do these things blindfolded. But then what? He reasoned that if he proceeded with the AMU, he still would not be able to see to fly it. And could he take it off with one hand while holding onto the spacecraft with the other? Would it be wise to try when he couldn't see? No. It would be much better to end the exercise now, he thought. So he and Stafford discussed it and decided to cancel the rest of the EVA. And, fortunately, Mission Control agreed. Here's the clip. Cernan eased himself out of his comfortable seat on the AMU, leaving his sun visor up to see if that might help defog his faceplate. At sunrise, he detached the AMU's electrical umbilical and connected his spacecraft lifeline. Still almost blind, he groped his way out of the adapter and back along the spacecraft to the cockpit. He slid into the hatch and stood there a few moments. Stafford held on to Cernan's legs so he could rest. This is what he transmitted.
In case you had trouble understanding what Cernan said, I will read the most important part from the mission transcript. Quote, I think one of the problems was that just before sunset, I bet my backpack must have gotten over 100 degrees because it was really hot. And right after it got cold, my visor started fogging up and I could do part of the things with the fog visor but I just couldn't see enough of what I was trying to get at when the visor fogged completely over. End quote. Now here is NASA spokesman Paul Haney from Houston explaining the next move. Cernan's moving up now on the forward end of the spacecraft to retrieve the rear view mirror which he mounted on the docking bar at the uh, earlier in his extravehicular activity. We have no firm estimate yet on just when Gene will return to the spacecraft. We would expect it to come perhaps five to ten minutes now. The flight plan showed that he could remain out up to five hours and fifty minutes. He may elect to take the full time. It's just not known at this point. His fogging is now reduced to about forty percent. While standing in the spacecraft hatchway, Cernan's faceplate began to clear in the center, giving him a narrow range of vision. He tried to retrieve an externally mounted mirror that Stafford had used to watch what was going on behind the cockpit. As Cernan wrestled with the mirror, his suit cooling system became overtaxed, causing him to get extremely hot for the first time. His faceplate again fogged up completely. Here is Paul Haney. Stafford has recommended that uh, Cernan return to the spacecraft before sunset. He had planned to return to the hatch area about uh, 51 hours and 45 minutes into the mission. And that takes some uh, sunset and darkness photographs. However, due to the fogging condition, which still obscures about 40% of Gene's visor, uh, the decision has been made by Stafford concurred here on the ground that Gene uh, return to the spacecraft and the hatch be closed uh, fairly shortly. We still don't have a complete explanation for the fogging. We do know that uh, while, while in the AMU area, in the adapter section, suddenly the temperature uh, rose. Uh, Cernan reported he got quite warm. When he did, the fogging condition nearly obscured his visor area. It then began to uh, became retarded. He could see more, and uh, but it still persisted. And when he left the adapter area, it was still 75 to 80 percent obscured. It's now down to an, on the order of 40 to 50 percent. Two of them now are working, uh, stowing the umbilical, getting Gene back. Let's go back and listen to this. With the attempt to retrieve the mirror proving too taxing for Cernan, Stafford helped Gene get back in the capsule, and together they closed the hatch and started pressurizing the cabin. They've got the hatch locked. This There's a word. Controlled Houston at 50 hours, 31 minutes into the flight. One minute ago at 50 hours, 30 minutes into the flight, Stafford reported we have the hatch locked. They now are preparing to repressurize the cabin. And uh, we'll settle down for the remainder of this flight. Inside the capsule, with their helmets almost touching, 
Stafford still could not see Cernan through the faceplate. The EVA had lasted for 128 minutes instead of the planned 167. Fogging had started 63 minutes after the hatch was opened. With Cernan safely back in the capsule, many have wondered what would have happened if Gene was unable to get back in. I have a very special audio clip from an appearance made by Gene Cernan and Tom Stafford many years after the flight. They're discussing what Tom was ordered to do if Gene was unable to get back in the capsule. Cernan can be heard clearly, but there was some difficulty with Stafford's microphone. separately we were all going together so 
to the mission. Two major objectives of Gemini 9A were rendezvous and extravehicular activity. The third was experiments. Stafford and Cernan gave closer attention over a sustained period of time to the assigned experiments than any Gemini crew had before. When the spacewalk was postponed to the third day, the astronauts spent most of the second day on experiments and rest. About the only conversation they would tolerate from the ground was about their workload. On several occasions, when flight controllers forgot, they were reminded that the crew was busy. The flight controller could only reply, My mistake for contacting you. Stafford and Cernan had to perform the M5 experiment, which was the bioassay of bodily fluids. This required waste to be collected and labeled in laboratory fashion. Like other Gemini crews, Stafford and Cernan disliked this complex and messy task, nor did they enjoy the blood sampling they had to endure before and after the mission. Stafford equated the physical effort for the M5 experiment to that required for doing a rendezvous and a half. The Department of Defense supported one experiment in addition to the Astronaut Maneuvering Unit. D-14, UHF-VHF polarization. To measure the inconsistencies of the electron field along the spacecraft's orbital path and to study structures and variations of the lower ionospheric region, Stafford and Cernan operated the D-14 transmitter five times over Hawaii and once over Antigua during five successive revolutions. Everything worked well, but the number of measurements was limited because the antenna was poorly located. Later, when he was struggling outside, Cernan accidentally broke off the D-14 antenna. The four remaining experiments were scientific. Two of these involved micrometeorite collection. Experiment S-10 was a package mounted on the ATDA for Cernan to pick off during his spacewalk. This he could not do, but the astronauts did manage to photograph the package. The pictures showed that the device was in excellent condition. The second experiment of this type, S-12, 
was attached to the spacecraft and operated by the astronauts by remote control. When Cernan was in the adapter, he heard Stafford close and lock the box. Cernan retrieved the package and stowed it in the spacecraft. Cameras were the principal instrument used in the last two experiments, S-1, Zodiacal Light Photography, and S-11, Air Glow Horizontal Photography. Stafford and Cernan took S-11 pictures on three successive night passes between the 29th and the 33rd hours of the flight. They got 45 good photographs under very trying circumstances. The tendency to float upward in zero gravity made pointing the camera and taking the pictures no easy task. Zodiacal light photography had been scheduled for the spacewalk, but a fog mirror faceplate was no help in aiming a camera. The pictures had to be taken from inside the spacecraft after Cernan had returned to the more restful confines of his couch. Cernan had to hold the camera against his chest while pointing it out the window at the targets and calling out directions to Stafford for aligning the spacecraft. He obtained 17 good photographs. On June 6, 1966, during their 45th revolution, it was time to come home. Here's Tom and Gene from the post-flight press conference describing their re-entry experience. Believe me, this is a this is a real ride. Tom was knew what to look for, and I had been told what to look for. But uh, it's very difficult to describe, and I know those of us who have been there uh, just hope everyone uh, could ever could always have this chance. It's just fantastically beautiful, and uh, something you can never repeat here on Earth. So look how far I can say it scares me. Gene, uh, that's, that's what you get for going twice. Yeah. I, was, I was too new to, be, uh, to me to be scared. Uh, Gene obtained the first three and a half minutes. I obtained the last three and a half. So kind of shooting pictures and uh, watching the needles and flying the spacecraft. Kind of a busy job. Just backing up a minute to when retro fire occurs, uh, it, it was quite a quite an experience just to have those retros fired, but, but when they do, there's no doubt about the fact that you're coming home. You may not know exactly where right away, but there's no doubt that uh, you're on your way. Now, at this time, I'm pulling nearly full lift. We had two hot retros, and so we lifted in quite a ways to the carrier. I'm full lift when Germany is upside down. Your feet's in the sky, your head's in the earth. And we're back to about 20 degrees uh, off the complete upside down position. We finally come into what would be our zero lift line. We get zero lift, we roll the gym. And you'll see this shortly. I put full controller deflection in and we start to roll. The G-forces at this time are building up so that you're actually now, forced back into the back of your seat. Now we're starting to roll. We've reached the zero lift line. We know we should pull about zero lift and the wash should be down uh, in front of us there about 300 miles away. And we're rolling around about 15 degrees a second. You see a black shot come over and make a tremendous hot spot on the nose section. You see, there, see that shot burning on the nose? Gemini 9A splashed down 0.7 kilometers from the planned impact point in the Atlantic Ocean, 72 hours, 20 minutes, and 50 seconds after launch. After scanning the panels in the spacecraft and flipping some switches, the crewman opened both hatches, relaxed, and watched the gentle rolling sea. 
they were close enough to raise their arms and thumb a ride on the USS Wasp. Stafford and Cernan stayed in their spacecraft until it was hoisted onto the ship's deck. After the usual recovery excitement had subsided, Cernan told anyone who would listen to him that extravehicular activity was not easy, not nearly as easy as people believed. And he seemed bitterly disappointed that he had not been able to fly the Air Force's maneuvering unit. To the public, the frustration of Gemini 9A, the formidable shroud on the ATDA, and the fog faceplate overshadowed its accomplishments. Flying formation with and examining an unstable body had been a useful experience. Of even more significant were the advanced rendezvous maneuvers proving that the flight controllers and the crew could handle sophisticated rendezvous techniques that might be applicable to Apollo. Had Gemini 9A been Gemini 8, the results might have been viewed differently as just part of the learning process. But docking, a primary objective, had not been achieved, and extravehicular activity had not succeeded in evaluating the maneuvering unit. Some engineers in MSC Crew Systems Division thought too much was being tried too soon. The simpler maneuvering unit planned for Gemini 8 would have been the next logical second step in mastering EVA. But with the goal of landing a man on the moon before the end of the decade, astronauts and machines were pushed ahead as quickly as possible. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.